0: Lorenzo Snow gets up in front of the congregation and he actually instructs them how to give the Hosanna shout. Okay, this is the first time that happened, where we get a priesthood leader explaining how to do this. And that becomes part of it here on out. It is led by priesthood authority.
1: Welcome to the Saints Podcast. I'm Ben Godfrey.
2: And I'm Shaylin Back. We're so excited for you to join us today. We'll be discussing chapter 42, Inspiration at the Divine Fountain.
1: In this chapter, one of the things that I found fascinating, and I'm wondering what you thought, Shaylin, was Lorena Larson. We met her in a previous chapter. We know about the struggles she's had, but now the manifesto has happened, and Lorena and Bent continue to struggle with living as a plural family. Let me play a little clip here, and I want to get your thoughts on this.
3: But even though Monroe was Lorena's hometown, she did not always feel welcome there. Throughout the church, many plural families continued to live as they always had, confident they were doing God's will. Some church members in Monroe, however, believed it was sinful for a man to continue having children with his plural wives. When it became clear that Lorena was expecting another baby, some of her neighbors and family members began to openly scorn her. Bent's mother feared that Lorena would get her son thrown back in jail. Lorena's sister said that a pregnant plural wife was no better than someone who had committed adultery.
2: I was just shocked by everything that she's Going through because, first of all, plural marriage was hard for a lot of people to accept. And so here they exercise so much faith in actually doing it. And then now they're here, they're not giving a lot of direction. It's a very confusing time. They're not really sure what to do. And her own mother, like she's experiencing so much opposition from so many people, it's heartbreaking.
1: I just had never considered before what it must have been like for families that were committed. And then the manifesto comes along and there's this confusion. But the thing that really just set me back was that other members of the church, they knew what sacrifice had been. They knew how difficult this had been. And for them to treat her as a second-class citizen, like that somehow she was wrong for doing what the prophet had asked her to do in the first place,
2: it was just painful. And kind of to add insult to injury, Bent decides that he is going to leave her completely In the midst of all this confusion, he doesn't want to get in trouble. He doesn't want her to get in trouble. So we understand kind of where he's coming from. But here she is pregnant, and she just doesn't even know what to do. I can't imagine how overwhelming it would feel for her. And she's
1: getting mixed counsel. Daniel Wells, the president of the Manti Temple, is telling her, you need to go ahead and continue to do this. Your marriage is as solid as it's ever been. Go ahead and have kids. But not everybody's getting that message publicly. And then the marshals show up and throw bent into jail again Mm -hmm. let's listen to one more little clip here
3: that september bent pleaded guilty to the charge of unlawful cohabitation and a judge sentenced him to serve one month in jail the punishment was not as severe as it had been years before when bent had served six months on a similar charge in fact since the manifesto sentences for unlawful cohabitation were often much shorter than before But it was a reminder that if Lorena and Bent continued their relationship, the consequences could be hard to bear. Still, it was a risk the couple was now willing to take.
2: You mentioned counsel that she was getting, and I love this moment that she has with another president of the Mante Temple. So we've talked about him before. It's Anthony Lund. And when she was just talking about her situation with him, he was weeping with her. So it just, to me, showed how big this issue was and how— It was affecting so many people in so many ways. And he tells her, walk straight ahead amid the sneers and jeers of everybody. You are all right. And I feel like that's how she tried to live her life in spite of all these difficulties and this overwhelming challenge that she's given.
1: It is really a fascinating insight that we're learning here in Saints. And we have other fascinating insights today. We have an incredible guest with us, Jake Olmstead, who is a curator with the Historic Sites Division. Welcome, Jake.
0: Thank you. Excited to be here.
1: One of the reasons we're excited to have you with us, Jake, is because you've done a lot of work and research and editing and writing on the topic surrounding the dedication, the completion, of the Salt Lake Temple. And that's a big part of our chapter today. So maybe we can start with you telling us a little bit about something that we call the Hosanna Shout and what that's like. In a previous episode, our listeners might remember down at the St. George Temple groundbreaking, they did the Hosanna Shout and they'll remember from volume one, Hosanna Shout in Kirtland. Tell us about the background of this and what's new in the Salt Lake Temple dedication.
0: Sure, thank you. This is a cool topic, I think. So most Latter-day Saints, when they're participating in a Hosanna shout today, they oftentimes will draw a straight line historical connection with what they're doing and what was done at the Kirtland Temple dedication where they shouted Hosanna as part of that event. And what they might not realize is the Hosanna shout as something we do as a practice among Latter-day Saints has kind of gone through this winding path that has not always been associated with temples. So, yeah, you have this opportunity in Kirtland. Portland to do it, and then it's done again in Nauvoo. But once the Latter Day Saints arrive in Utah, it's done all the time. Really, they're oh. doing it when uh, wagon companies are coming into the valley. They're doing it at all parts of completions of portions of temples. I mean, even the saints that were in, imprisoned for unlawful habitation were doing the hosanna shout as part of things they were doing when they were together. It's kind of spreads everywhere and it's done all the time and not always in association with the temple. And part of that is because Latter-day Saints have this interesting history where people were coming into the church being converted from Protestantism and part of that tradition is shouting. That's a part of that tradition as part of an expression of religious faith is shouting. And so they're kind of taking this thing that they grew up with in their own faith and they're kind of blending it together with the language that's used in the Hosanna Shout that's done formally as part of temples. And you get kind of this formalized Hosanna Shout and also spontaneous Hosanna Shout. And they're happening all the time, but they're all being categorized Hosanna Shout. Interesting.
2: So when did that stop and become only associated with the dedications of temples?
0: So that actually happens at the capstone ceremony of the Salt Lake Temple. And in fact, what's really interesting here is that is the last time it's done outside of a temple until 1930 with the centennial of the founding of the church, right? 1830 to 1930. So in that centennial year, it's determined in conference to do a hosanna shout and it's outside the temple and then the next time after that is the conference center. Wow. And I then, actually remember that. Yeah. And then the only other times it happens outside of a temple is when it's in a meeting house that is being brought into the temple experience because everyone there has temple recommends and they're having the experience for Latter-day Saints to observe and be
1: participate via media. Right, it's um, so the satellite feed where we maybe you're in an area and you're not able to travel there but they've beamed the ceremony into your local meeting house.
0: Yeah, and in that case, the chapel becomes part of the temple, and then that experience uh, happens there. But at this time, before the conference actually goes out as part of the capstone ceremony, it starts in the tabernacle. They have a brief meeting and a prayer before a procession goes out to some makeshift bleachers that are outside the temple as they're getting ready to lower the capstone ceremony. But before they do that, Lorenzo Snow gets up in front of the congregation, and he actually instructs them how to give the Hosanna shout. Okay, this is the first time that happened, where we get a priesthood leader explaining how to do this. And that becomes part of it here on out. It is led by priesthood authority, and it becomes confined to the temple. And on that occasion, another thing that kind of gets formalized is the waving of the handkerchief. That does not happen until that time. That's introduced at the capstone ceremony of the Lake Temple. He has a large handkerchief. They go over the language, and then they go over the hand motions. And so it's taught... And then they follow that teaching when they're actually out as part of the capstone ceremony where they do the shout. And what's really cool is the commentators at the time and the newspapers that are reporting on this event talk about how this was, you know, today we're all waving white handkerchiefs. Well, at the time, not everyone had white handkerchiefs. In fact, I don't even know if it was a requirement to have white. It was very colorful. Everyone was waving what they had in their pockets. And so you get this colorful waving of the handkerchiefs as part of the capstone But then this pattern is followed during the dedication. Lorenzo Snow again gets up. This is how we're going to do it. These are the words we use. This is the hand motions with the handkerchief. And then from then on, after Salt Lake Temple, it becomes standardized. And this is part of a development from, say, 1890 to 1930 1940, the church is kind of going through this standardization process where a number of things like requirements for entering the temple, what is and isn't a part of the Word of Wisdom, how the church keeps its finances. There are all kinds of things that are being standardized during this period, and the Hosanna Shout happens to be one of those things that gets standardized, but it starts with Salt Lake.
2: Jake, when we're looking at the Salt Lake Temple, where is the capstone? What's the capstone?
0: That's really cool. As well, if you look at that east center spire, the angel Moroni is standing on top of a sphere that actually is composed of two parts. There's the bottom part that hooks to the top of the spire, but then there's a lid with an edge on it that helps it sit into place. And it's hollow in the center. And that ball, that sphere the angel stands on is about three feet, you know, so it's, wow. it's about this big round. And it's so like bigger than a beach ball. Yeah. It's yeah. a, it's a it's, big it's large. ball. Yeah. I had no but, idea it was that yeah. large. And it's uh, approximately three inches thick of border around that's been hollowed out. If you think three feet minus six inches, that's the, so there's about two and a half feet of volume on the inside, side to side and up and down.
2: So what's in there?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So part of this 19th century experience in America and maybe not even America, maybe everywhere. I don't know too much about that, but when they complete buildings, there's this idea that you create kind of what we'd call today is a time capsule. They called it a record stone. And they filled it full of things that they deemed important to define the growth of the kingdom of God on earth. And so there's the custom bronze plaque that is inscribed with all the general authorities' names. There's a set of contemporary scriptures, a set of contemporary copies of the Deseret News, a number of missionary tracts, those kind of things. But the one thing that, and we have this complete list, it was recorded in the Deseret News, but the one thing that's really kind of a mystery that would be great to know what this is, it states that there's a photograph of Joseph and Hiram Smith. And for those who know anything about this, know that that's like the Holy Grail (laughs) of church photography. Right, right. There's no known photos of Joseph or Hiram. And there's a lot of speculations, but we don't know what that means. Is it a a daguerreotype or a photograph of a statue of Joseph Smith? Because certainly those were around. Or is it this elusive photographic evidence of what Joseph looked like? And I don't know if you've talked about this, but this is not the only record stone on the temple. When the temple back in 1857, when they were moving from the footing to laying the first portions, first courses in the basement walls, so you're still eight feet below ground, in that first course in that southeast corner, there is a record stone there as well and wilford woodruff talks about his experience this was in the summer of 1857 putting uh, some of the same kind of things scriptures missionary tracts they put some gold coinage from the state of deseret and kind of put it in there and then of course with that story you have the utah expedition johnston's army coming and on all the issues that arise from the foundation they have to pull portions of the foundation out and Wilfred Woodruff in his diary talks about he didn't think he would ever live to see us taking out the record stone from the basement of the Salt Lake Temple, which then doesn't get put back into place until 1862 when they're ready to move forward with those basement walls again.
1: We tried to get Emily Ut on the record when we were talking with her about <laughs> what was going to happen during this renovation period for the Salt Lake Temple. And she's very professional. She wouldn't She wouldn't tell us. But we're excited along yeah. with a whole lot of other people to see what happens maybe in the next few years as the renovation work is completed on the temple. Yeah,
0: it would, that would be quite a treasure to be able to look in that. And the thing that's really fascinating about that particular record stone is from the historical documents, we know that they created a little shelf inside the ball to set these things on, and then they poured concrete into the ball. So what happened to that stuff? I mean... Who knows? Not to mention the fact that it has a hole running straight through it where the anchor system to the Angel Moroni runs through and is connected to a pulley system in the tower itself. And so everything could be ruined as well. I mean, water finds a way. So it's quite a mystery.
1: It was interesting, too, to me to see that they lowered the statue in place with an electric system, which... I mean, it hasn't been that long since electricity sort of been generally available. And right. that must have been a pretty cool technical achievement to just press a button and watch him lower watch in place. It
0: go down. And of course, as part of the, I don't know if Emily talked about this, but the temple itself in preparation for its completion had its own dynamos and boilers to create both electricity and steam heating for the temple. So Temple Square, it was not a part of any city grid for electricity. It had its own power source and they were able to set this up to be able to raise and lower the angel in place and of course part of this they had a contraption set up so that when it lowered into place a bell rang so everyone would know that it indeed happened very cool yeah
2: so jake now we have this capstone in place when do they put the angel on right away or what's the timing of that
0: Yeah, it's kind of interesting to think about in my mind, I guess I'd always put the two together that you'd put that capstone on and immediately after the angel would follow. But no, the angel was actually placed in a separate event. The capstone ceremony takes place kind of first thing in the morning on that day. And it's not until three in the afternoon that they have the implements in place and they're ready to actually mount the Angel Moroni to the top of the capstone. And it kind of sits hand in glove on the top. The center of the Angel Moroni has a iron infrastructure that's kind of holding it all together. And it runs all the way out through the bottom of the feet and runs into the tower there and is held in place by a pulley system with a a counterweight. So the angel actually does move back and forth in the wind. It's designed to do that. And there is a gauge in the tower where that counterweight sits that shows you how much it's moved in the course of time. And it does move.
1: It was interesting in the book too that Apostle Francis Lyman stood before the crowd and let's just play a little quote here about what he asked them to do now that the capstone and the I believe the angels in place.
3: Apostle Francis Lyman then stood before the crowd. I propose, he said, that this assemblage pledge themselves collectively and individually to furnish as fast as it may be needed all the money that may be required to complete the temple at the earliest time possible, so that the dedication may take place on April 6, 1893. The proposed date would be the 40th anniversary of the day Brigham Young laid the temple cornerstones. George Q. Cannon called for a sustaining vote on the proposal, and the saints raised their right hands and shouted, I.
0: What an electric scene to think about. I think what's interesting there to me is the focus on money. I think a lot of time when we think about the temple, it's full of pioneer craftsmanship and they did all this stuff by hand and it was volunteer and donated. But by the time they're getting ready to complete the interior the primary need is cash to go purchase the things that they need in order to do it in time really if we can buy something as opposed to make it by hand that's better and for a long time the in terms of the temple construction the church had moved away from its need for volunteer work to like say pull stones or go cut stones out of the mountain now we need this professional quality craftsmanship and not near enough of it in the valley to do it all in one year. And the other thing to consider in the 1880s is that the church has been losing all kinds of money due to the government raid, so the church is cash poor. Right. right. So they need the monetary donation of the Latter-day Saints to even complete this in time to reach this 40-year marker.
1: Speaking of political climate, can you tell us a little bit about what is this like now, that the saints are living at a time when The manifesto has been announced, but it's still sort of unclear. People aren't sure, I mean, outside of the church, aren't sure whether to trust this. What's it like? I can
0: imagine it would have been a particularly confusing time. And and Saints does a good job of highlighting an example where, what do I do if I am married to multiple spouses? And so, theologically, because polygamy is a bedrock principle that many had altered their lives around. And so to walk away from this, wow, hard to imagine. But not long after that, you have this other kind of stunner. And it happens in the spring of 1891. So only like a year later, the church announces we are going to be dividing politically along the national party lines for the entire utah territorial period until that time there was the people's party which was the latter-day saint party and then you had the other party the gentile party it was kind of essentially latter-day saints versus gentiles and living in a very black and white world it was very hard for some latter-day saints to think that it was okay to have different ways of seeing political views. There's only one right way, and that's the right way is the prophet. And this presented real struggle and created a lot of backbiting among the Latter-day Saints. And say you choose to be a Democrat and the prophet's a Republican. Well, is the prophet right or wrong on these political issues? It
1: seems (laughs) like to us today that that's okay. Like, we're used to it. But like you say, coming out of this era when we're all on the Lord's side and we're gonna vote together in the People's Party. This must have been really kind of confusing.
0: Absolutely, and not only that, there's great potential there to say negative things and to think ill of people that don't think the. I mean, we, we see that today, right? Maybe more so now than ever. It's very easy to start to think negatively about those who don't view politics the same way you do and to speak openly about this from the pulpit. I mean, we've come a long way given the manifesto, given the People's Party issue, yeah, a lot of backbiting. And it's not just among the lay Latter-day Saints. I mean, even into the church leadership, you have some pretty heated political minds on both sides of the spectrum. And so if you get up and you use your pulpit to say something political and another general authority gets up and says something political, Wow, it puts people in a very difficult position. And as we're moving towards the dedication, now remember, the temple has been central to the efforts of the letters. And it has some millennial overtones, right? We're fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah. Brigham Young had said on a number of occasions, I want this temple to stand through the millennium. Right. And so, are we on the precipice of the millennium and is the Salt Lake Temple an important part of that step? And what happens if we as a people are not worthy to be the Lord's people? And is the Lord going to even accept this as an offering? Will he accept the Salt Lake Temple? That is a question, and as they're moving towards the dedication, the brethren say, we need to take action in the, in the course of the last few years in May 1892, so this is right after the capstone ceremony, and again in March of 1893, which is just a year before the dedication, they ask for a churchwide fast. They're asking people to fast, not only for gratitude that there's been some reprieve from the struggles with the federal government and to have the kindness of heart to donate the money necessary to complete the temple. But particularly in that March of 1892, as we're a month out from the dedication, it is fast and pray so that you can forgive those who have wronged you and that you can go and ask those who you might have wronged for forgiveness in the church-wide statement that goes out, politics is mentioned. It's saying, okay, we need to go and ask forgiveness and forgive others. And we have a letter from Joseph F. Smith, who's in the first presidency, to the architect of the Salt Lake Temple, the architect that is overseeing the completion of the interior and also the spires, uh, Joseph Don Carlos Young, who's a son of Brigham Young, Anyway, let me read this letter to you. It's, yeah. it's quite wonderful. So, this is, I should say, dated March 27th. So, this is the day of the fast. Dear brother, President Woodruff has shown me your letter of the 24th to him, in which you make complaint against President Cannon and myself as, quote, having treated you as though we had no love for you nor any respect for your position, close quote. To say that I am surprised at your making such a statement to President Woodruff would be putting it very mild. And yet I suppose at my time of life I should be surprised at nothing. I am very sorry that I have given any cause for you to feel as you have expressed yourself to President Woodruff concerning me. And while I am really unconscious of having done so, I am ever ready to make amends for any mistake of mine. And if you will verbally or in writing state wherein I have shown any want of love or disrespect for your position, I will humbly acknowledge my fault. Meanwhile, permit me to refer you as a brother and a friend to a passage of Scripture, which you will find in Matthew 18, 15, and 17, which embodies a principle that has become so generally established in the discipline of the church and so deeply impressed upon the minds of the saints that for you who are so well posted and who occupy so prominent a position before the church to overlook it and carry your complaints beyond the one who gave the offense to one who should not have been troubled with it is sufficient cause for surprise to me. I will await any action you desire to take respecting myself. I have no complaint to make against you. I am not conscious of having done you any harm or wrong, but I have underlined, and you will show me herein. I will make it right to the best of my ability. With kind regards, I am very sincere, your brother, Joseph F. Smith.
1: It is interesting (laughs) to think about, on a general level, people reaching out and trying to make amends at this time. Yeah. Do we know, has that ever happened since then? Has there been a church-wide fast for other things that you can think of?
0: I'm sure there's been church-wide fasts, but about unity, that was the big issue here. We are divided as a people, and a people divided, we're not one in Christ. We have this temple, yes, but are we ready to go in and dedicate it? And will the Lord accept it? That's fascinating. It is fascinating. And I think the call for the fast itself, but also the call for essentially repentance and forgiveness, I think illustrates how serious the brethren thought this problem was and that they do this twice. They also, in the dedication itself, Wilfred Woodruff, that prayer includes references to the political division and the unity. And as each member of the First Presidency gets up to address the dedication, that first session talks about, are we unified? Everyone who feels we are unified, say I. And so this was on their minds as they were going into this dedication. This was a big deal that we don't really hear about, but certainly one that they felt the saints had overcome. They had become one and they could go in and do this dedication. And that building was accepted by the Lord.
1: Well, we're going to have to tell our listeners you've got to <laughs> tune in for the next two episodes. We've got two more to go for Saints, and then we'll have a final episode for this season. But in our next episodes, we're going to see what happens at the Salt Lake Temple dedication, what the people feel, does the Lord accept the offering. It's an incredible finish to this great story we've been telling over Saints Volume 2. But we thank you so much, listeners, for joining us today. There is so much in this chapter. I don't know about you, Shaylin. I just feel like we kind of scratched the surface in today's episode. If you haven't read it yet, you've got to read about the 50th Jubilee for the Relief Societies. You need to read about Charles Eliot, the president of Harvard, and his Council on religious liberty, and James Brown.
2: There's so many great stories.
1: James Brown is incredible. He's an amputee. He's a one-legged missionary who is going back to the Polynesian Islands. It's just...
2: And people don't recognize him because it's been so long and he only has one leg now.
1: (laughs) You got to read the whole chapter. There's an incredible amount of stories and details here that we didn't have a chance to cover in today's episode.
2: Well, Jake, thank you so much for coming on today and sharing with us your insight, especially around the capstone of the temple and everything else you've shared with us about that event. And thank you to our listeners for joining us. We just want to remind you that you can read all the chapters and catch up on any videos and topics that we've discussed on saints.churchofjesuschrist.org.
1: And you can always email us with your questions and feedback at our email address, saintspodcast at churchofjesuschrist.org. I'm Ben Godfrey.
2: And I'm Shailen Back. Thanks for listening.